Welcome to Brisbane West Vineyards Podcast. It's great to have you with us. We're a community of people sharing God's love, power, and life that's revealed in Jesus. We gather Sundays, 5pm, at Good News Lutheran School in Middle Park. We exist simply for the King and His Kingdom, that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So today we're going to do a word study, um, not on the Lego character Emmett. <clears throat> um, <laughs> for those who have seen the Lego movie, no, joke, lost, okay. <laughs> no more jokes. <laughs> uh, I've, I've coined this one anchored upon the Emmet of God, uh, which is very clearly a Hebrew word, which we're going to, uh, we're going to watch the Bible projects. Um, they do a, an outline on it first. So we're going to go through that. Going to talk about it just a little bit on how it applies to us. All right, here we go. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this last characteristic of God. It's the Hebrew word emet, which can be translated as faithfulness or even truth. It's related to another word you've probably heard before, amen, which is an untranslated Hebrew expression meaning that's truth. So emet can mean truth, and it can refer to correct ideas or concepts. This is because emet has to do with stability and reliability, like when Moses holds up his hands for hours to defeat Israel's enemies, the Amalekites. His friends put a rock under him and support his hands so that his hands will remain emet, or steady. When emet is used of people, it describes reliable and stable character or trustworthiness. Like when Moses appoints leaders in Israel, they're to be people of emet, people who are trustworthy, who won't take bribes or distort justice. So to say that God is full of emet doesn't just mean that God tells the truth or stands for truth. It means that God is faithful and trustworthy. This is why Moses calls God a rock, saying that he's faithful, just, and upright. He's saying that he can trust God to be consistent to his character. And the Hebrew word for trust is actually the verb form of the word emet. It's he'emin. It can be translated as to believe or to have faith, but most basically it means to consider someone trustworthy or to trust. The first person we meet in the Bible who considers God to be trustworthy is Abraham. God makes a promise that Abraham and his wife Sarah will have a huge family and that through them, all nations will experience God's blessing. But Abraham and Sarah are really, really old, and they've never been able to have any children. And yet, in the face of these challenges, Abraham means God. He considers God trustworthy to open a way forward. And God does show Emet to Abraham and Sarah. In just four generations, their descendants form a whole nation called Israel. And God invites Israel into a trusting and faithful relationship. And when God leads them out of slavery in Egypt, Israel means in God. They trust and rely on him. 
But when they come to the land God promised to Abraham and they find out it's filled with giant cities protected by giants, their trust in God's emet fails. But eventually we meet an Israelite who does trust God in the face of giants. It's David. He yells at the giant, you come with a sword and a spear, but I come with the name of the God of Israel. David consistently relies on God. In fact, it said that David walked in emet before God. So David considers God to be faithful and responds with faithfulness. This is why God promises to raise up a faithful descendant of David, whose kingdom will endure forever, or in Hebrew, have emet. This faithful king will become the source of trust and stability for others forever. But when the kingdom later collapses, the Israelites find themselves without a home and without a king. And they cry out, Oh God, where is your loyal love that you swore to David in your emet? They're accusing God of abandoning his promises to Abraham and to David. Is God trustworthy? Is he faithful after all? The first line of the New Testament is an answer to that question. This is the lineage of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, through Jesus, God fulfills his promises. Or as Paul says, Jesus came on behalf of God's faithfulness. He is the faithful king whose kingdom will endure forever and who invites all nations to trust God. Now, trusting anyone is risky. It's hard to know if anyone is really full of emet. But the biblical story portrays a God who's been faithful all along and whose promises were fulfilled in the story of Jesus. And so as we look out at the obstacles facing us and our world, we're invited to take that same risk and join Abraham, David, and the people of God in trusting that God is overflowing with faithfulness. We say it all the time, but they're very good at summing up large concepts into short videos. So we're very grateful for the Bible Project. So I'm just going to recap a little bit and then divert us left and right and hopefully we'll end up here at the end. Um, So what we just saw in the Bible Project video um, was a word study and what they referenced there was uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Now, the person who wrote that was actually Moses. And so one of the ways that uh, we see there that Moses describes God uh, was of faithful. Um, And so this is what he said, which was in the video. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and emet, which was faithfulness so as we saw the Hebrew word amet is often translated as truth and as a verb it essentially means trust or to have faith in um, now the words used over 320 times right, in scripture and um, therefore it's quite often more often described about the character of God um, than any other form. And so this is something that Moses is here trying to draw our attention to. Have a look at the character of, of God as one who is a met. 
So when it's used uh, in its noun state, as we just read, uh, just saw in the video, it's translated to s as someone or something that is trustworthy or faithful. Um, now, we've lived on the planet long enough to know that trust and faith in someone is quite a difficult thing to do, right? Not so much when you're little. It comes naturally, more naturally when you're little. But if you live a little bit, you get burnt a little bit, right? And so as human beings, we actually have lots and lots of examples where people display themselves to be the very opposite of a met, right? If you... Uh, Think about your personal traumas, not all at once, otherwise you'll pop. But if you think about kind of the deeper things that you've really wrestled with, all of them will be centred around someone who has broken your trust, right? Or who has become unfaithful to you, right? So this is a big ticket deal. Now, the common denominator at the centre of broken trust and unfaithfulness is actually self-centredness, right? So we're going to explore that just a little bit, and then we're going to journey back to the psalmist who writes in Psalm 36 about God's faithfulness and gives us some imagery to help us kind of anchor what it looks like. So self-centredness, and forgive me, this is going to be just heavy for one moment, all right? Self-centeredness can be defined as the process of thinking and then acting to worship the inner self by willingly sacrificing another person's time, money, body or life for the person's own internal or external gratification. Okay, so I know that's... Pretty heavy. And I'll say it again. Self-centeredness is the process of thinking and then acting to worship one's inner self by willingly choosing and sacrificing another person's time, money, body or life for the inner self's gratification, right? Whether it's internal or external. Everyone with me on that? There's a lot of words. Sorry about that. Now, the Bible is filled with this right here. Most of the stories in the Old and the New Testament, you're going to see this fairly common. Now, if we start right at the start, and we're not going to go through them all, but if you think of Adam and Eve, right, they would actually sacrifice their relationship with God to become a God. Right? That was Satan's offer to them. Don't serve Yahweh. Become God yourself. So there was a sacrifice that took place there on their part. Think of Cain and Abel. Cain, out of his jealousy of his brother, he killed Abel to remove what? His competition, right? Selfish ambition, self. Think of Abraham and Sarah, which in the video they held in very high esteem, right? But if you read their story you'll see that God made a promise to them and he has, he has been faithful in that. You and I are a part of that faithful covenant, right? Just so you're aware. 
But what they did when God didn't come through the way they expected at the start was they went off and they planned this little coup, right? And here's what they did. They used Hagar, right? She fell pregnant. When now she's got a baby, she's broken the family apart from jealousy. And so what they decide is, oh no, our plan stunk, didn't really work. So we're going to feed Hagar and the baby to the wolves. She's going to send them out into the desert. What do we think about uh, sacrificing another person's life, right, for self-gratification? It's a pretty serious deal, right? So there seems to be this deep-seated need within humanity, right, to be whole And we come up with these creative and yet quite sinful ways to try and make ourselves whole. Now, if we think of Israel's kings, uh, for Christmas, Jonathan and Helen um, bought me the infographic Bible. I don't know if you've ever seen it, and if you've got some spare money, you should buy it if you're a visual person. And they have two kind of A4 pages where it shows you all of the Israel's kings. Right? I think all but four of them did what was right in front of the Lord's eyes. The list is very extensive and they go through and they show you they worshipped this and they did that. And right, What's this all out of? It's all out of self-centeredness. It's out of trying to worship something that's from the inner. Right? Now, again, King David was kind of highlighted as a man after the God's own heart. But if you read his story, and we all know his story a bit more, he sees this fine-looking honey pie bathing on top of his, on top of the rooftop, right, from his chambers, and he thinks to himself, yes, sir, okay? That's what I'll say. Yes, sir, thank you very much. Someone pop down there and invite her to dinner, right? Now, he knew full well that she belonged, she was a lifelong friend, she was a lover and a wife of somebody else, okay? It was no surprise to him, he knew. So he moves straight to fourth base, he ends up killing her husband and gratifies his desires and then decides, I better make her my wife, right? Now, what do we think? Self-centeredness? It's pretty high on the list. So the Bible's full of the stories. And as I mentioned earlier, there seems to be this sort of insatiable need to kind of gratify something inside us to make ourselves whole at almost any cost to others. Um, War is a perfect example throughout history where one person decides it does not matter how many people lives are taken, I want that thing self-centeredness, and it's about internal gratification. So when you read Paul's writing, he says that every act of lust and anger and rage, murder, and every lie, and every time something is stolen, they all achieve the same thing, which is they break down trust and they erode faith in humanity, right? 
a whole news we just were devastated by, somebody who has been a part of our community. When you hear that story, you think to yourself now, I don't know if I can trust the next person who says, hey, in a car park, right? These things erode our humanity, but they erode our trust and our faith in one another. So what we see Moses writing here is that when he writes it, he's surrounded by this self-centeredness in his community and in the nations around him. And yet this is what he says. He says, my God, Yahweh, is the opposite to this. When I think about my God and I look around me, what I see is compassion where there's mercilessness. I see grace where there's revenge. I see anger and malice, but God is slow to get angry, right? And I see an overflowingness of loyal love and faithfulness to God's people, right? So this is a good insight from Moses here about what's happening in the world around him right? and who the character of God is in the middle of that. It's not absent from that. It's in the middle of that. So very shortly, we're just going to have a look at Psalm 36. And then we're going to do a little exercise, which is an interactive exercise. And it's between us and the Holy Spirit. Okay, So we're not going to get into... Groups, although there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I'm not going to get you to come out here and tell us your story or anything embarrassing like that. We're just going to take some time to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. But first, let's get into this great passage. And this is what it says, Psalm 36, 5 and 6. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness, if we were to sing the words of the song, stretches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains and your justice flows like the great deep or like the ocean's tide, right? So we're all familiar with this. We've all read this before, right? So what does this mean in light of the psalmist? imagery and what does it what does it mean for us when we're talking about God's love reaching to the heavens right so this is what we do I've got a little diagram up here this is the imagery of the psalmist writing with the creation story in mind okay so if you think of in the beginning God created the Heavens and the earth, right? So the ring on the top, heavens. Considered the realm of God. The earth considered the realm of man, right? So we keep that in mind. The skies, the great deep, and the mountains. Now, here's what I want to say is, God exists in all of these spaces, right? He's not just subject to the realm of God. Does that make sense? So he's not just stuck in the top circle trying to get out. Right? Now, where they intersect is Eden, 
the tree is not proportionate, okay? If someone says to me, man, that's a huge tree, of course, you wouldn't have seen it if I made it as, you know, as correct. <laughs> um, I wasn't in Eden, but I imagine it was a big tree, but probably not that big, right? Now, God exists in all those spaces because he is omnipotent and he is omnipresent. Now, fancy words, theological words that essentially mean that God has all power available to him at any time, right? And God is available to be anywhere and everywhere at any time, all at the same time, right? Imagine the school drop-off if you could be at home and at school at the same time. It would save a lot of stress. Now, the imagery here is just to help you and I. It's not for God. It's to help us to be able to visualise things. But what we want to share about is we are understanding this in terms of the nature and character of God. Okay? So is that everyone with me on that? Right. So Psalm 36 when the writer of Psalms says, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, what they're saying is, from the realm of man, God's love extends all the way higher than the realm of man and into the realm of God, right? So it's a, it's a distance thing from here we are to all the way up there, right? So here's the cool part when I was doing some research and I better hurry because my iPad is very quickly running out of battery. Little diagram because this is my favourite thing. The realm of man that you and I know today, now they didn't know that obviously when the psalmist wrote it, this is new information for them, okay? But if you travel from the north to the south pole, right, it's 12,712 kilometres, okay? They can measure those things now. It's awesome. If you travel across the equator from one side to the other, it's 12,756 kilometres, okay? This is the realm of humanity. This is, right? Now, when the writer talks about God's faithfulness that reaches the skies... Imagine that the writer has never seen Mount Everest, never Googled it, has no ideas, right? But today what we can do is someone's gone up and measured it. Long measuring tape is what I thought. 8,800 metres from sea level to the top of Mount Everest, right? Now we have buildings that reach the clouds, which again the psalmist didn't have in their time. Anyone been up the Caliph, the Burj Caliph, right? No? John Michael have seen it with their bare eyes. Right. Anyone else seen it? I'm told that you can't see parts of it because of the cloud, right? When the cloud arrives, never rains there very clearly. But when the cloud's there, you can't see the top. 
So it's pretty tall. Anybody notice the mathematics? Mount Everest is exactly 10 times taller than our biggest building to date, right? So the imagery that the psalmist is trying to draw us onto here is when he talks about the mountains, faithfulness that reaches the skies, right? We're talking his faithfulness goes further than 8,800 metres, right? Now, the interesting thing is when the writer talks about the righteousness being like the highest mountains, in the original writing, they're actually speaking of security. Now, the Bible Project kind of outlined that in the video before. It was about when a person steps over upon God's words, they are standing on security, right? Now, for those who are Lord of the Rings fans... Can anyone tell me what the town and the city that was built in the side of the mountain? No. Joke number two, gone. Okay, when I get to joke number three, I finish. But essentially, when the builders decided we're going to build on the most secure thing, they usually built into the side of a mountain, right? So the psalmist is saying that there is this security in God's righteousness that can't easily be shaken. And lastly, when the writer in the Psalms speaks about the character of God's justice, he speaks about reaching the great deep, right? Now, the writer of the Psalms was talking about not the bottom of the ocean, although we'll explore that in a moment. Um, They were speaking about the power of the grave, right? There was no resurrection of the dead for the majority of people, okay? So when Jesus comes along, places his hand on someone and they come back from the dead, this is somebody coming back from the great deep, right? So... This people are freaking out because this doesn't happen, right? So here's the takeaway from this. The justice of God in the psalmist's mind when they write it, they've got this idea that God took humanity's sin and transgressions and sentenced them to the great deep, right? Because nothing ever comes back from there until someone come back from there. Right? So, if we consider, now this is a bit of a joke, this is my third joke, if this doesn't work, it's no good. If we consider the deepest known place that humanity has gone, right? It's called the Challenger Deep and it's in the Manara Trench. I think I said it wrong. Did I say it? Mariana, Mariana Trench, thank you. Okay, so the record of a person being in a vessel is 10,929 metres underwater, right? That's a long way, right? 10 k's. 
it's three times deeper than the Titanic. Now, if we consider the highest place, and I just want to draw our attention to this, the highest place, the furthest place that a human being has travelled is also dark. There's no lights on there. It's on the other side of the moon, right? The dark side of the moon. The opposite direction, exactly the opposite direction, There was a team of people who travelled over 3,800, sorry, 384,400 kilometres from Earth. It was somewhere closer to 400,000, but they couldn't measure it exactly at the time. Right. They went around the moon and then came back. Unmanned vessel... I didn't write it before, but an unmanned vessel has been over 13 kilometres underwater, right? Which is pretty crazy. And currently we have two unmanned vessels that are floating out in space. And at the moment, they're about 24.4 billion kilometres away, right? So... A long way away. So I share all of this to give us some kind of imagery that when the psalmist wrote these things, they didn't have the information we have. They don't have the Hubble telescope and they don't have submersible vessels, right? They've never been to the top of Mount Everest. But they're inviting us to go on the journey. But this is what they're trying to say. God's love extends further than we can travel in space. God's faithful. He is faithful. More faithful than the length and the breadth of the skies. Added together. God's righteousness is the surest foundation that we could build our lives and our morals and our financial decisions. In fact, it's so secure that we can make every decision on it, right? And lastly, the justice of God the justice of God crushed the very self-centred nature in all of us. That nature that tries to continually drag us back into the depths of sin and our transgressions and tries to drag us back to our despair. And what we see is that God said, this is not my mess going on on earth, but I'll take responsibility for it. I'll get involved. And he came in Jesus. And this is the interesting thing. He took the justice, the things that we deserved, and he took it into his body and he lay into the earth, into the deep, into the great deep, where no one comes back from. Right? You are sentenced there for eternity. 
and yet he comes back out again. So the power of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus actually embodies the fullness of faithfulness, right? When a nation is unfaithful, Jesus remains faithful. When an individual or a family is unfaithful, he says, let me show you what it looks like to live as faithful people. And then he empowers us, even unto death. And God raised him from the dead. Imagine the writer of Psalms having written that and then the Lord lays out the measurements for them. Did you realise when you said this? This is right a little bit of a Joe moment. Where were you when I stretched this over here and I... Put this cornerstone there, right? But the takeaway for us is that unless you are Voyager and unless you are 13 and a half kilometres underwater, God's love and his faithfulness and his mercy will reach you anywhere you go, right? Can't run from it, can't hide from it. You can choose not to accept it. But God's not absent in your realm because he's not absent in any of the realms that we've just talked about. So this comes to our interactive part. This here represents your life. Okay. Now, I wasn't going to put age brackets on here because I'm at 40 now and that's a, different, that's a different game, right? No longer 30, now 40. Tomorrow, that is. But this here, the ribbon, represents the middle of your life. Okay? So for some of us, it'll be quite short. For others of it, just a few days longer. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a coloured pen and a group of tags, right? They've all got a rubber band on them. And what we're going to do, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to ask the Holy Spirit, bring things to mind in the first half of my life where you were faithful when no one else was. Right? Now, for some of us, we can fill these in a second. Others, we've got to work just a little bit harder. But we're soon going to see that most of us would run out of space if we really just took a minute and thought through it, right? And then what we're going to do is once you've done the first half of your life, okay, we don't need all of them, you just come on and we're going to... put it on like that. So this is a faithfulness exercise because for some of us, we're experiencing stuff right now, whether it's health or other things, where we're genuinely struggling to get our hands on the fact that God's been faithful. And we're actually not sure, will he continue to be faithful? So this is a faith 
building exercise. This is for us to remember. And then what we're going to do with the last one, you may use three for that exercise. But for the last one, what we're going to do, and I'll put it up on the board so if your memory, like mine, because I'm old now. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was the last joke. Too soon. We're going to write on here what we are asking the Lord to be faithful in in the next season. right? And we're going to take this with us as a reminder. And I'm going to ask you to revisit in a month, whatever. How's the Lord going? How's his faithfulness going to me for what I've written down on here? You might be coming out of a grief cycle. You might be at the start of medical issues. There may be relational breakdowns, whatever it is. Lord, can I trust you? Will you help me trust you to reveal your faithfulness to me again in this thing?